The words are also printed in your bulletin for ready access, Genesis 16. We continue this morning in our series on the life of Abraham, and we'll consider God being our helper, John, or Genesis 16 in its entirety. Before we do, let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Lord, we're coming before Your Word now because we need You to speak to us. We need to hear the Word of God preached. We need to have it applied to our hearts. We need Your Spirit to assist us in this enterprise. Help us in doing this thing. Please, Father, open our hearts to receive Your Word. Show us things from Genesis 16 this morning that will exalt the Lord, that will humble sinners, and that will comfort us with the hope of salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons, and I must emphasize one of the reasons, that many embrace the Bible as true is because it accords with what we experience of human nature and the human condition, like it makes sense of the world around us. When we read the Bible, the view of human nature and the human condition written across the pages of Scripture matches what we see in the world and what we see in ourselves. And many throughout the centuries have acknowledged this as an unusual feature of the Scriptures, of the Christian Bible, of the Word of God, and that is the very candid, the very authentic, uh, frankly, the very accurate picture the Bible gives us of human nature and human experience, of what life in a fallen world is. There's just no narrative that makes more sense of the world than the Bible does, of what we see around us in the world, the sin that we see there, the sin that we see that lies within. Many converts throughout the centuries have said this upon reading the Bible, that it made sense of what I feel inside and of what I experience in human relationships in the world. We might say the Bible feels true. It feels real. The narratives, the accounts, they read like real history. They're earthy. They're gritty. They're very human. They're very honest. I wonder, have you ever found it interesting, uh, all of the the heroes of the faith, so-called, almost all of them uh, have recorded in the Scriptures at some point humiliating episodes? I mean, just think of some of the names that are regularly brought out before us in Scripture as, 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 as those who are the people of God and quote-unquote heroes of the faith. So many of them behaved ignobly and sinfully and in embarrassing uh, ways, and there's a really good reason for that. It's because the Bible's a true story. It's accurate history. It tells us what actually happened in the lives of sinful human beings. It doesn't glamorize the human story. Uh, Rather, it gives to us an accurate picture, a real picture of what human life and the human condition and human experience is like. And we have many of these humiliating, very human stories given to us in the Scriptures. We have one such episode in our passage this morning. Uh, This passage will give us an up-close, I would say, and somewhat uncomfortable uh, view of an imperfect, fickle, and sinful family. Uh, no one but God Himself comes off well in the narrative of Genesis 16. In a sense, that can be said of the whole Bible. No one in the Bible comes off well except for the Lord Himself as He's revealed in three persons. Many of us here ha- grew up in dysfunctional families. Uh, marked by divorce or sexual sin or abuse or or other type tragedies. But we get this morning in Genesis 16 a look at a very dysfunctional family. Uh, But we mustn't miss that even this passage, with all of its twists and turns, with all the dysfunction, all the sin, all the tension, all the strife, still this passage wants to reveal to us something about God and our need for His grace. When I was a child, I had a pastor uh, who occasionally, every four or five months maybe, I don't know, um, he would preach sermons with a very simple outline. They were often sermons out of the Gospels, and they always had the same basic outline. Uh, He would consider uh, the main characters, the main events, 
and then the main lessons we can learn. I want to imitate that outline this morning in our exposition of Genesis 16. We'll consider these three points, the main characters, the main events, and the main lessons we can learn. Consider with me, in the first place, the main characters, and there's four of them in this passage. First is Sarai. Later, she'll have her name changed to Sarah in just another chapter or two. What do we know about Sarai so far? up to this point in Genesis 16. Well, of course, we know that Sarai is Abram's wife. She's introduced to us as such in Genesis 11. And there, we're given only one other detail about Sarai in Genesis 11, verse 30. All we're told is, now Sarai was barren, and she had no child. Uh, Surely an indication that that information will be relevant to the rest of the narrative later on. We know that Sarai went with Abram when he was first called in Genesis chapter 12. Abram and all his house went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land that God would show him, and clearly she is to be included within the sphere of blessing that God is going to bring for Abram. We know, of course, if you've been with us in this series, we've seen this already in the latter half of Genesis chapter 12, Abram uh, spinelessly puts his wife Sarai in harm's way in Egypt in order to save himself. He agrees with Sarai that she will tell the Egyptians that uh, not that she's his wife, but that she's his sister. And Sarai is then taken into Pharaoh's house, presumably to be made uh, one of his wives. And of course, we know, we saw in the latter half of Genesis 12 uh, that God, in part, uh, because Sarai will be pivotal to the plan, God delivers Sarai and doesn't let harm befall her, she's delivered out of the house of Pharaoh, and Abram and Sarai leave Egypt back into the promised land with many possessions. But up until now, believe it or not, uh, four chapters or so, now we're in the fifth chapter in our series in the life of Abram, Sarai so far has been without a voice. Uh, She has yet to say anything. Uh, She's been included in, in the plan, and she's been with Abram all this time but she has yet to make a significant contribution to the narrative herself. This passage in Genesis 16 actually represents the first real introduction of Sarai into the story of her voice being heard, and um, it's not exactly an impressive introduction. More on that in a minute. Second main character is Abram, of course. We know him. We've been telling his story for these last few weeks. God elected him and made promises to him in Genesis chapter 12, calling him out of idolatry and pagan worship, calling him into gracious and sovereign purposes. And he promises to Abram there in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that he is going to give to Abram land, the land of Canaan in particular. He's going to give to him a seed. He's going to make a great name and a great nation out of Abram. Offspring will come from him. And he's promised also that in him, and this will later be said, through his offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is going to work some kind of redemption and blessing and deliverance for all the peoples of the world through His kindnesses, through His dealing with Abram. Abram in Genesis 12 is obedient to the Lord's call. He leaves his country, his kinsmen, his father's house, and he goes and answers the Lord's call. And so far as we have seen in this series, he has demonstrated great faith, um, and at the same time has been guilty of great failure. God in Genesis 15, those initial promises that had been made, He then formalizes them into a covenant with Abram. And the emphasis we saw in Genesis 15 a couple of weeks ago is on the sovereign activity of God and of His initiatives and of His grace that will bring about the fulfillment of these promises for Abram. And all that said of Abram in terms of his contribution, chapter 15 verse 6, which we considered last time, is that Abram believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He had faith that God would do what he said he would do, and that faith is counted to him as righteousness. Well, now we get to Genesis 16. Here's Abram. Promises have been made, but the promises have not yet been fulfilled. It's been roughly 10 years since Abram was first called. He was 75 years old when God called him out of Haran, out of Ur. And now we read at the end of chapter 16, he's 86 years old when Ishmael is born, so we're probably a year before that, roughly. So we're about a decade uh, into the narrative for him. It could feel like maybe just a few weeks to us, because it's only been a few weeks that we've covered uh, the events up to this point. But it's been 10 years for Abram. 
And here is Abram awaiting the fulfillment of the promises. Perhaps he's doubting. Perhaps he's beginning to get desperate. He's 85 now. He's looking. How is God going to do what he said that he would do? That's Abram. Third main character is Hagar. Hagar. We don't know much about Hagar. The first time her name is given to us is here in Genesis 16. We know two things, though, in particular about Hagar. Number one, Hagar is Sarai's servant. She's Sarai's maidservant, probably the most prominent of her servants, kind of her right-hand woman, uh, the woman that was the primary uh, servant, caretaker, helper to Sarai. She probably had a place of prominence among the servants that belonged to Abram and Sarai. We learn, secondly, that she is an Egyptian. Uh, So, she was not probably with Abram and Sarai when they left Ur of the Chaldeans. It's actually probable, if you recall, in Genesis 12, verse 16, uh, Pharaoh, because he's so pleased with Sarai, Abram's wife, starts sending herds and cattle and male servants and female servants to Abram. Could it be that Hagar was among those female servants that were sent to Abram while he was in Egypt? And when he went out, that property remained his. We don't know exactly, but we know that Hagar, Sarai's servant, she's an Egyptian as well. This is the first time she's introduced into the narrative, and it won't be the last. Fourth and final main character. Do you know who it is? It's, of course, the Lord Himself. It's God as revealed by the angel of the Lord. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? Lots of theories about that. I'm not really interested in getting into those theories. This is a representative of God or some manifestation of God Himself. But this is the Lord visiting Hagar one way or another. What we realize, we can forget this as we read through so much of the narrative where God's name is not mentioned, but we'll have these events and we'll read about the rivalries and the strife present in Abram's house and we'll read about all the dysfunction. And we can forget that God sees everything and that God is present. And then He'll just all of a sudden intrude on the narrative. And you'll remember that all this happened before the face of God. God was always there. And usually we learn, as we've seen so far in the life of Abraham, God is working out His purposes, uh, even in the sins and the failures of His people. We're going to see He's at work seemingly in the petty details of the lives of this nomad family through ordinary sins intentions and rivalries and embarrassing little episodes, painfully and predictably capricious human behavior, God is at work. Those are the main characters, Sarai, Abram, Hagar, and then the Lord Himself. Consider with me now, secondly, the main events in Genesis 16. So, what happens? Stage is set. These are the characters. What are the main events in Genesis 16? Uh, Consider with me. There are five. Consider with me, firstly, Sarai's scheme. We have Sarai's scheme. Look with me at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now to us, to our modern ears, this may seem like sort of fantastical kind of idea. Who does this sort of thing, right? But in the ancient world, this actually wasn't incredibly uncommon, particularly for women who were barren, who were infertile, who weren't able to have children of their own. This was a form of like ancient surrogacy. Uh, So, the idea was not that Abram would impregnate Hagar and that Hagar would then have a child that then belonged to Abram. No, Hagar's child would belong to Sarai. Hagar would carry this child, and Sarai would then adopt the child, as it were. So, she would carry the child for Sarai because Sarah's not able to have children, and once the baby's born, Ishmael would be her son. Common practice, it was suboptimal, of course, something of a desperate measure, but it was done, and it was seen as a kind of solution to the problem of barrenness for some women. Now, it's it's really hard, I think, for us to understand uh, how the ancient world would have thought about barrenness. It was hard for a woman in those days to imagine any greater scourge, any greater curse than to not be able to have children. This, such a premium, such a value in the ancient world was based upon having children. Of course, in our day, many couples choose not to have children. They elect not to have children. But in those days, it was a sign of blessing 
uh, that, that a woman's womb would be open, she'd be able to have children. And so to be barren or to be unable to have children would have been devastating to someone like Sarai. And, and this has the feel to me of Sarai getting desperate. Look, look, it's been 10 years. I'm not getting any younger. I'm not having any children. Here's what we can do. Why don't you go into Hagar and then Hagar can give us a child. She's getting somewhat desperate. But I think we must acknowledge this is clearly sinful behavior on Sarai's part. She is encouraging her husband to go outside their one flesh union of marriage in order to secure something for Sarai. I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think Sarai is thinking very much about Abram and about the promise. This is so Sarai can get children. And it seems that rather than going through the providential means that God had set forward for them, she's going to engineer something for herself. The Lord did not tell her to do this. I don't think we can say Sarai believed she was acting in great righteousness or faith in this effort. The Lord had not directed her to do this. She is taking matters into her own hands. And um, this was not revealed as part of the plan for Abram and Sarai. It's interesting just to observe uh, in in Genesis 12, uh, Abram, in order to secure something for himself, is all too willing to allow his wife to go outside the context of their one flesh union. It's safety for me if I can send Sarai into Pharaoh's house, and he's quite willing to compromise the covenantal marriage bond as long as he can be delivered from hardship in Egypt. Similarly, again, to gain something for herself, she's quite willing for Abram to go outside the one flesh union that was theirs to be enjoyed in marriage, and nothing good can ever come from that. At the same time, though Sarai, I think, is in serious sin here, I think it's hopefully easy for us as sinners ourselves to sympathize to some degree with Sarai. Who knows what sorrows were hers, uh, how broken and how sad she was, and how she would have wished that something else could be done, that she could have a child of her own, and perhaps in her desperation and in her fear that she will live and die childless, she gives in to temptation, she sort of collapses under the pressure, and she engineers this sinful way by which to acquire a son. That's Sarai's scheme. Secondly, second main event, we see Abram's complicity. Abram's complicity. Uh, The end of verse 2 says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. I'll just say, I don't know that this connection should be drawn. I just can't help, though, but hear the words of Genesis 3 at the fall. God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. That doesn't mean it's wrong for husbands to listen to their wives. That's not what the text is saying. But to go along with your wife in her sin, you're going to be punished. And then, what do we have in Genesis 3? Uh, 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 Eve takes the apple. She gives it to her husband with her to take. Here we read very similar language. Abram's wife took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, it's worth asking at this point, just as a matter of context, trying to understand what exactly is going on and what's motivating Abram and Sarah here. Think with me, okay? I I know many of you are very familiar with the chapters that are to come and the story of Abram, but think with me. What have we seen up to this point? What does Abram know about the promises of God? At least in terms of the record we have, we know from Genesis 12, he knows that God is going to give him land. He's going to give him a seed. He's going to make his name great, make a great nation out of him, uh, and he's going to bless the world through Abram. In Genesis 15, those promises are sort of accentuated to a greater degree. And God, God tells Abram, look up at the stars. Can you number them? Well, so shall your offspring be. Nations are going to come from your line. However, just as a matter of fact, it has not been revealed to us yet that Abram necessarily would have known that that child must come from Sarai. That's not going to be revealed until Genesis 17. And it does appear there that it might be a new revelation 
Uh, there, Abram is going to plead with the Lord, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, let Ishmael look on him as the promised seed. Like, this is the promise, right? This is, this is what you're going to do. And it's only then that God reveals to Abram, at least in terms of the revelation we have in Scripture, it's only then that God reveals, no, your very own wife, Sarai, is going to have the child. I will not accept Ishmael. This will not be the means by which the promise would come. I say that just to say, what Abram does is terribly sinful. We'll see why in a moment. But could it be that Abram thought, well, maybe this is how God's going to bring about the promise? This wasn't illegal in those days. It was done. It was practiced. It does seem under the Old Testament that God tolerated for a time due to the hardness of men's hearts, the idea that they might have more than one wife. Maybe Abram thought, maybe this, this will be the way that God brings about the promise. Certainly by Genesis 17, he's hoping for that. Okay, now that said, I don't think there's any getting around the fact that this was a profoundly sinful episode in Abram's life, and not at all an expression of virtue or valor on his part. There's a question some of the commentators wonder, is, is Hagar actually given as a wife to Abram? We read that Sarai gave Hagar as a wife, we don't know exactly if that means that they literally became husband and wife, or if she permitted them to enjoy something of the sexual union that is enjoyed in the context of a marriage relationship, even though Hagar never actually really did become his wife. That's a little bit vague. Either way, it's not good for Abram. Okay, if she's not his wife, this is a clear instance of fornication. That is, sexual intercourse outside of marriage. If she is his wife, I think it's even worse. Because what we're going to see in a few minutes is that after impregnating his wife, he banishes her into the wilderness and effectively becomes an absentee father, abandoning her to the elements, to wolves and dogs and men who might take advantage of her and the child that is within her. There's no way around the fact that this is an instance of terrible failure and sin on Abram's part. That's Abram's complicity. Now the third main event. We see Hagar's contempt and Sarai's severity. Hagar's contempt and Sarai's severity. Verse 4, and he, Abram, went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. This seems just a little too predictable, doesn't it, how this unfolds? You wonder, what was Sarah thinking? How was this going to go? She ends up getting exactly the plan works out according to Sarai's plan. But, but isn't this how it would happen? Uh, Hagar looks with contempt on Sarai. Well, see, now I've conceived. She has not. Maybe I will supplant Sarai. Maybe I will be favored in Abram's affections because I'm able to give him children. She becomes haughty and she looks with contempt on Sarai. Just an aside here, okay, because I think in our culture, our climate, this needs to be said. Uh, it is considered by many uh, almost a symbol of virtue to be a victim of some kind, a victim of abuse, a victim of mistreatment, a victim of, of some kind of violence or something like that. And it's often assumed that victims themselves cannot be guilty of any wrongdoing. Okay, that's not the case here plainly. Hagar is a victim, and she should have our sympathy and our compassion. Horribly mistreated, this poor girl. Basically taken by her mistress, given to this man, kicked out into the wilderness to die. She's a terrible victim, and she should have our sympathy. And yet the Bible acknowledges that even though she is a victim, she was sinful in her own right. She looked with contempt on her mistress. If you yourself have been a victim in some way of some kind of mistreatment of any kind, and at some point all of us in our lives are, not to the same degree, but all of us are treated spitefully in some ways by others, can be victims in certain ways, the goal for you is the goal for every child of God. That is your sanctification and your growth and your godliness. And there's a sense in which much of the New Testament is written to help victims to not retaliate with sin and to help victims grow in grace 
and to help victims find satisfaction in Jesus and to follow the path of righteousness that is laid out for us when wrongs are done against us. Honestly, you can go back and read 1 Peter, the previous book that we considered together. Much of that book is written to help people understand how to live godly lives even when they are terribly mistreated. Well, this is just an aside. There's a window here, I think, to say this. Those of us who are victims can still be guilty of sin, and the need for us is to cling to Christ by grace and to be sanctified and to walk in godliness as well. We should never think that victimhood exempts us from needing to walk in godliness. We should never think victimhood as a status absolves us of sin. Though at the same time, as we'll see, Hagar is a victim and should be cared for. We should sympathize with her. But she looks with contempt on her mistress. Verse 5, and Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. If Abram wasn't such a worm in this passage, you could almost feel sorry for the guy, right? Just did what you told me, right? What? Now you're saying this is on me. She's basically pronouncing a curse over her husband. And you've got to wonder, what did Sarah think was going to happen? But now she's essentially cursing her husband for this outcome. But Abram said to Sarai, verse 6, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Think of what Abram's saying here. Think of how this couple has treated this poor woman. Gets her pregnant. Maybe she's considered his wife. We don't exactly know. I don't care. Do whatever you want with the woman. She's your servant. What he really is, most commentators think he's doing, is giving her permission to discipline Hagar with violence. Perhaps to chastise her servant, to beat her servant. You just imagine what nightmare must have been going on to cause Hagar to flee from her mistress, to take flight, which is basically a suicide mission in those days. Already Abram is a nomad family. We've talked about what that means. He has no country of his own. He is prey to people out there who would harass him and seek to overtake him and take his possessions. Do you think that a pregnant Egyptian runaway slave is going to fare any better? And yet she would rather pursue that path than stay in Sarai's house. And then we read, end of verse 6, then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Driving this vulnerable pregnant woman into the wilderness. Fourth main event, Hagar's flight. Very briefly, Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, Hagar, fled from her. Whatever the nightmare was that she was experiencing, whatever abuse she was experiencing at Sarai's hand, she says, i got to get away from this. And she runs into the wilderness almost surely to die. She's not hopeful, I'm sure, that there's going to be a good outcome for her out there in the wild. Number five, fifth main event and really the main event of the chapter. We see, fifthly, God's intervention. God's intervention. Look again at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Don't think that means that the angel of the Lord was looking and didn't know where she was and then found her. This means that when God intervenes, well, at that time she was at the spring of water in the wilderness. Verse 8, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, what a hard command that must have been. That's a hard word from the Lord. Go back and submit to your mistress. I have a plan, Hagar. I'm asking you to go back. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered 
from multitude. A statement of greater blessing than at this point Hagar could have ever imagined. Verse 11, and the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she, she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Again, you can wonder in the first six verses, where is God when all of this is happening? But God saw and God knew. He saw when Sarai first hatched the scheme with Abram. She saw, he saw, excuse me, when the scheme was executed. He saw also when Sarai abused her servant Hagar. And he saw Hagar, she fled into the wilderness. And here God intervenes on her behalf. God sees her affliction. And he stands up for her and pronounces blessing over her. Well, now in this final point, we've considered the main characters, the main events. Let's consider the main lessons. Can we learn anything from Genesis 16 and what we see here? What are the main lessons we can draw? There are three, and then I'll be done. First of all, very simply, sin creates a mess. There's not an easier way to say it. Sin creates a mess. No one comes out of this episode without mud on them. Sarai, scheming, blame-shifting, harsh and severe with her servant Hagar. If Abram, who's passive, lies with Hagar and then refuses to intervene on Hagar's behalf. You have Hagar and her contempt and her haughtiness, perhaps seeking to supplant Sarai. This is just a wicked triangle of sin. There's so much dysfunction, strife, and tension that sin wrought for these three relationships. That's because sin creates a mess. Think of how these relationships were poisoned, not only in the immediate aftermath and all the heartache that came from that, but rather consider also the effects that were going to continue for many days into the future. I, I, I'm just speculating here, but I don't think Abraham's household was a very peaceful household thereafter. This woman who perhaps Sarai has beaten, slept with Abram, Sarai's wife, well now they're all back together under the same roof. What kind of tensions and strife they must have experienced? And we're going to see in chapter 21, this boils over into another very sad episode in Hagar's story and her relationship to the family. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. Sin creates a mess. It fractures relationships. It destroys lives. And I just want to take a point of pastoral privilege here and apply this to us in a more particular way. Sexual sin in particular creates a mess. There is just nothing good that comes naturally out of breaking free from the one flesh covenant union that God has designed between a man and a woman. I mean, just think of this. If you wanted to promote human flourishing in the world by ending one sin, one vice, I would challenge you, I don't know that you can do better than ridding the world of sexual sin. Whether it's adultery, fornication, children born outside the context of marriage, pornography, sexual abuse, you name it, sexual sin brings ruin. It did in this family. It fractured relationships. It erodes trust. It injects poison into our lives and into the lives of our loved ones. And I just want to warn us this morning, brothers and sisters, let's take this caution. Nothing good can come from going outside the one flesh covenant union that God has given to us. An older man said to me recently, he said that your generation, I think he means not just people of my age, I think he means the present age, 
is probably the most sexualized generation in human history. Would anyone disagree with that? There is such ruin and harm and sadness that comes from sexual sin. And of course, we see it here. Fractured relationships, people abused, resentment and strife that is developed, that is allowed to seep in to these relationships between husband and wife and servant and master, and eventually we'll see children and their parents. I think we should just take a warning here. Sin makes a mess. But there's a second main lesson we should see here, and that is that this sad episode gives rise to a wonderful revelation about God. The second lesson is this, God sees the afflicted and the oppressed. Our God sees the afflicted and the oppressed. Verse 11, the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. God is saying, I have paid attention to your case. I have seen your sorrow and your sadness. I have seen how you've been treated and used and abused. I've heard your affliction. And so Hagar responds, verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Through this episode with Hagar, we have something revealed about the nature of God. And that is that God is a God who sees. God looks on the afflicted and the oppressed. God is revealing to us in this very sad narrative that He is not remote. And He's not myopic. It's not like He could only focus on one thing at one time. His eyes look out over the children of men, and He sees all. Nothing escapes His gaze. He sees everything. Which means, friends, that God sees every injustice. He hears every cry. His eyes look over all the sinful and treacherous acts carried out in the world. He sees every victim of abuse. He sees all the suffering in the world. He sees and He knows. My friend, God has seen you. He's seen your life. He's seen your case. He's seen your affliction. How you were abused. How you were oppressed the things that have been done to you, unless we think we're only victims, He's also seen the things that you have done to others. And any act of sinful treachery and abuse and oppression toward others that we ourselves have carried out, God sees all injustice, all wrongdoing, all abuse, all affliction and oppression in the world. And He takes thought and He takes care even and perhaps especially for those of whom no one else takes thought or care, sometimes even the Lord's people. Think about this. There is no evident reason, at least in the world's eyes, why God should pay any attention to Hagar. I mean, as far as we know, and this is borne out in the narrative in future chapters, she's not part of the plan in any significant sense. I thought this was about Abraham and God giving him a seed and God bringing a blessing to the nations. Why this interruption and distraction with Hagar's story? She's not part of the covenant plan. She's a servant. She was a piece of property. She was chattel in the ancient world. She's of no more significance than a cow or a goat or something like that in the eyes of the ancient world and apparently in the eyes of Abram and Sarai, and yet God sees her. God takes care of her. God looks after her because God sees in her the dignity and worth that He has implanted there that the people around her can't see, including those who spitefully use her and abuse her, even Abram and Sarai, who are part of the covenant purposes of God. God sees her affliction. He knows her case. He takes care for her, and He intervenes for her, and He helps her in her affliction. I just want to make this point on the side here that I think is very important. 
Friends, it might be easy for us to forget. But remember, there is no suffering in this world that is relieved apart from God and His sovereign care. I know the world is evil, it's full of sin, full of darkness, full of suffering, terrible suffering that takes place every day. But how much more of it there might be if God did not intervene? If God wasn't a God who sees, the reality is most people in the world right now at this moment are not suffering miserably. Why is that? That is because there is a God who sees, and there is a God who takes care, and there is a God who intervenes on behalf of those who are suffering evil. The reason why evil in this world is not greater than it is is because God intervenes on behalf of those who are suffering. He holds back the flood of sin that might be ours if He was not a God who sees. Oh, if He was not a God who sees and a God who cares, our lives would be nothing but an unending flood of hell. But God sees. God takes care. God intervenes. And every bit of suffering in this world that is beat back and that is removed is removed by a sovereign and loving God who cares for His creation in their affliction and in their oppression. Every orphan who finds a home, every hungry person who is fed, every sick person who recovers, every injury that is healed, every broken heart that is mended, every womb that is opened, every cancer diagnosis overturned, every day the God who sees is overseeing and intervening to relieve millions and millions of occasions of human suffering. The Bible reveals to us a God who sees His creation, who cares for His people, and in His providence and mercy, and He directly intervenes in human affairs to relieve suffering, suffering like that of Hagar in the wilderness. We have a striking illustration of the kindness of God on behalf of those who suffer in this passage. Now, I know already what some of you are thinking. God doesn't relieve all human suffering. I recognize we're far afield now from the text, but I've opened a can of worms, so I need to talk about this. Some of you might even say, you know, honestly, the fact that God sees all, and you're telling me He's control over, in control over all, and that His providence overrules everything, that honestly just makes it worse for me. Because it means that God saw, and God didn't intervene. God saw and did nothing in this particular case. Because if we're honest... Not all the stories end like Hagar's story. Not everyone experiences the blessing that Hagar experienced. Okay, if that's you, there are two other things you need to know about God, the God who sees. First of all, the God who sees is the God who cares. So even if He doesn't intervene in the way you had hoped, in the way you thought he should have. The Bible reveals that nonetheless God cares. My friend, God cared when it happened. God saw and God cares for you. Nothing escapes his gaze, and as the creator and father over all, he cares for all of us. God is revealed to us as a God who cares. But the second truth we must appreciate about the God who sees is that he's a God who will do all things well. Abraham will pray to the Lord in Genesis, oh, I believe it's 20, and he calls upon him as the judge of all who will do what is right. A line comes to my mind now from a hymn I sang as a kid that has the line, though great distress my soul befell, the Lord my God did all things well. Well, these are things we believe about God by faith. The reality is God's sovereign care and the Lord doing right, His commitment to do right, will not always take the course in our lives that we expect it to take. But if you could know all and you could see all, you would know that God did all things well. God did see, He did care, and He will do what is right. We were talking about this at our small group this Thursday 
I think it was a very edifying discussion. One of the things we were talking about is the nature of faith and how faith works. We walk by faith and not by sight, right? Faith does not derive its life. It doesn't get its heartbeat from what we see in our external circumstances. Faith doesn't feast on, get its life from the things that we see with our eyes. Faith derives its life and its breath from the things we know and believe to be true about God. We walk by faith and not by sight. We hold fast to Him. Though the circumstances around us appear bleak and though there's this event that confused me and that thing that was dark, and I don't know, by the way, why that happened. I'm not seeing good purposes coming from that. But I know in whom I have believed. I trust His character and His nature. He is a God who sees, He is a God who cares, and He's a God who will do all things well. I trust Him. And I don't need any other proof more than the fact that God sent His own Son into the world to die for my sins that I might be saved. I don't know why I got cancer. I don't know why we can't have the child that we so want to have. I don't know why this person treated me in this way. But I know, I know that God sent his son into the world to die in my place. The greatest proof that God is a God who sees and a God who listens to affliction. God saw man in his sin, in his affliction, in his darkness, in his sorrow, and in his night. And God intervened. And He sent His Son into the world to die in our place and to rise again so that we can be saved and inherit everlasting life where weeping and sorrow and sin and oppression and abuse and all kinds of ruin will be no more. All of that will be gone because God is a God who sees. He's a God who cares. He listens to the affliction of His creatures. A third and final lesson and maybe the best of all. God just will not allow the sinfulness and brokenness of mankind to thwart His redemptive plan. Are Abram and Sarai worthy candidates of the grace of God? Just consider what they've done. And, and by the way, this isn't the first failure. I mean, I mean, if we were electing those who would best represent the faith, would we elect Abram? It just seems that God is determined, despite the failures of His people and the sinful messes that they get themselves into, it's like God is saying, I'm not going to stop loving you. I'm not going to stop pursuing you in grace and in mercy. You do everything to prove to me and demonstrate to me that you're not worthy of my grace. But I didn't set my love and grace upon you because you're worthy. Set my grace and love upon you because I'm a God who's steadfast in love and mercy. God is determined in this narrative to be shown as the God of salvation and the God of all grace and the God of all mercy. Have you experienced this in your life? Like, like, Don't we get ourselves into such messes sometimes? Either you've seen this in someone else's life, you've seen it in your own. Sin creates these terrible messes. and Some of you look back on your life and you just see so much brokenness and so much wrongdoing and so much ruin that's been brought about by sin. And yet, God's response to all of that, both the sin done to you and the sin done by you, is not to leave off showing grace and mercy to you. God is going to keep His covenant purposes to Abram and Sarai. God is yet going to bring a glorious and happy ending to this story where so much wrong and so much night and so much sorrow had crept in. God is yet going to bring deliverance for the nations through Abram's seed. Is our God not gracious? Is He not good? Is He not loving and merciful? Remember, He and He alone passed through the pieces 
in Genesis 15. What the story of Abram's life is telling us is that salvation from beginning to end is all a work of God. And our failures and our sins and the messes that we create through our self-will and our sinfulness and our engineering of our lives and trying to make outcomes for ourselves that make us happy, though those things are sinful, should be repented of, and though we should do better, nonetheless, God does not stop loving us. God does not fail to keep His promise. God will do what He has sworn. God will keep His word. He will save His people even when they make messes of their lives, as he is doing here. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the things revealed about yourself in this passage. There's just something about your character, who you are, it just seems to shine forth so brightly against the backdrop of our sinfulness and our failure. You are not like us, and you don't treat us the way we would treat one another. Rather, Lord, where we have so often been sinful and calloused and prideful, self-willed, self-centered, where we've been spiteful in our treatment of others, you have been gracious. You have shown yourself to be merciful. To all of us here who have struggled with suffering and affliction and oppression in the past, even perhaps now, may you sweetly persuade us that you are the God who sees, that nothing escapes your gaze. More than that, that you are the God of all grace, who's ready to save sufferers and sinners, to call them to himself through your son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we shudder to think we're so saddened by those who seem willing to accept the suffering and the pain and the sorrow that is so common in this world and to suffer alone, to suffer apart from God. We pray that more would come to know of these truths about you and who you are that you in mercy and in love, even in the context of our relationships here, may we have occasions to tell people about the God who sees and the God who cares and the Bible who offers everlasting life and freedom from oppression and sin and from sorrow and strife through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.